You're listening to Help for Mothers, the podcast that helps mothers with health, education, love, and protection. With co-hosts Augustine Colebrook, a maternal child health investigator, and Keisha Chiappinelli, a human rights attorney. Together, we dissect one segment of maternity health crisis in the United States every week. So I want to welcome my guest today. Elsa, I'm wondering, will you tell us who you are, where you are, and how you got inspired to do the work that you do? Well, thank you. And I could actually go a long way on that question, but um, let me start with my name and my background. So my name is Ilse de Queer Laros, and I am a Dutch woman living in Utah. I have lived in Utah for more than 20 years now. Um, and of course, it's been interesting for me as a Dutch person to move into this new country and new states and learn about the systems, etc. When I came, I was already very interested in early development, early, early development, particularly parent-infant relationships and how infants learn to get to know themselves and how the relationships work, work with infant self-development. And so I actually came to Utah to do research in the mother-infant research lab with Dr. Alan Fogel who was a famous infancy researcher at the time and studied co-regulation and emotions and, and self-development. And so I came here to Utah to work with Alan Fogel. And initially I was just a researcher and then I also started to teach on the side and still today I do teach development in infancy at the University of Utah Psychology Department. Meanwhile, while I was already here, I finished my PhD in developmental psychology. <laughs> so um, I was, I had that from the Netherlands, started there and finished, had to go back and defend. But then this was about, I think this was around 2001, that I got a knock on my door in the office in my big, it's a big concrete tower, one of those 1970s <laughs> psychology buildings. And uh, I got a knock on my door and I opened it and there was this woman from Northern England. She had still had a very strong Northern English accent. And this was Janet Wade, who worked at the time at the Baby Watch Early Intervention Program in the state of Utah. And Janet and her supervisor, Susan Ord, they had noticed that there was a lot of attention for infants delays in things like you know, verbal language, uh, motor development, that sort of thing, but not a lot in terms of support for infant social and emotional development, their attachment security, the relationship with the parent. And already in that early stage though, there can be, you know, we can have problems develop at that early stage, challenges, maybe problems is too big of a word, but there's challenges that we can intervene early and then we can make a bigger difference. And so Janet really recognized that. And so she pulled together a ton of people from all across the state in policy, in education, in healthcare, in research, from everywhere, she pulled them together. And we began this huge group and it was called Expanding Options for Infants and Toddlers in Utah. And that eventually led in 2003 to the foundation of the Utah Association for Infant Mental Health. And I will talk more about what infant mental health is in, in a little bit later. But yeah, Janet basically spearheaded it and she basically started uh, <laughs> this whole infant mental health association. 
And so she also pulled me into more practical work, doing presentations for professionals working with infants and toddlers in home visiting, early intervention, early child care, head start. So I learned to take the research and then teach it to people who actually use the information to work with babies and parents. Then in 2015, I got another job at a place called Help Me Grow Utah. Help Me Grow is actually started in Connecticut and it's now in more than half of the states in the United States, but it's a little bit different in every state. But what's the same in every state is that Help Me Grow, we work with pediatricians so that we can do resource finding and connection for families. We can do developmental screening. So we track the development of the children, their regular development, motor communication, etc. but also their social emotional development. And we recently have added screenings for autism in the children, but we also have added screenings for the mothers. So we do the Edinburgh postpartum depression screener with the moms. And Help Me Grow has been fantastic to work for. So that's been since 2015. And then on top of that, I've also been just in connection with all kinds of different organizations related to early infant development, maternal mental health. And Janet, again, has been a link between me and all those other places because she's very involved in all of those systems as well. That's really amazing. What a broad and diverse path you've been on. And what exceptional organizations that are doing really pioneering work. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know of any other infant mental health organization that is statewide. Do you? Yes. In fact, there is. So this began in Michigan. Okay. Yeah, Michigan started the Infant Mental Health Association. There was a pretty strong, they had several researchers and clinicians even 40 years ago, but I can't remember when they exactly started their official association. But the thing is, I'm not surprised that you are surprised because it's still not very well known. Yeah, it's not mainstream. No, no. And so there is a world association now. And so there's different locate, different countries have these infant mental health associations. And in the United States, I think most of the states now have one, but they're oftentimes volunteer driven. And so they can be really small. So they're very different in how much advanced they are, you know? And it's hard to get traction without dollars and lots of outreach and PR and all of that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, hopefully we can shine a little more light on that today. Well, so I want to ask you a question about this. So I am actually very familiar with some of the work of the Perinatal Psychology, Perinatal Health Association based out of, I think, Santa Barbara, California. They have done this this work around the consciousness of the unborn, newly born baby and that whole process. Is, Is this foundation or this organization around infant mental health at all associated or informed by that organization? Are, are you guys friends at all? No, to be honest, not very much. And I know of their existence and I'm very fascinated by the question, you know, what, how, what are uh, unborn children conscious of and what are they affected by in terms of the state of the mother and the environment, etc. Yeah. But the problem is, so I'm t- trained as a researcher, and the problem is it's very difficult, if not impossible, to study consciousness. Right. I know. It's like the ultimate yeah. human question, right? When yes. we start talking about this. 
Well, there have been some really interesting studies and a lot of the research of that field was brought together in this documentary that came out maybe 10 years ago now called What Babies Want. Are you familiar with it? I haven't actually seen that one. I'm curious well, now. <laughs> yeah, it was it was really groundbreaking. And I think in many ways still is because this is not mainstream. So many providers don't understand the impacts of everything that they do to the to the well-being. And so kind of the premise of this research-based documentary, which included Joseph Chilton Pierce and Mary Jackson and, you know, Ray Castellino and all these incredible uh, early pioneers in this process, was this idea that pregnancy, birth, and the first three years set the stage for everything that happens in a human's life. And they likened it to the idea that it's a pattern so we repeat that pattern over and over. Before, during, and after is a pattern, right? So before your birth, during your birth, and after your birth, how you're welcomed kind of sets the stage for what that human will experience over and over and over again in their lives. And I have to say that it is kind of hard to study, but empirically, many, many people resonate with this idea that it's vitally important what happens in the beginning. I know you resonate with that too. Tell me about the ways that you're coming at this from your research and your experience and what it is that you see, why it's so important, and how influences change or shift the, the mental health of infants. Mm -hmm. Well, again, a really big question and very fascinating question. And definitely, yeah. I'm, I'm extremely interested in this. And I think related to what you just said, I believe a lot of, the, of this, what you just said, comes out more experientially by people who do later therapy and then wonder where the patterns come from. And having been steeped in actual pretty rigorous research, but also at Help Me Grow Utah, I'm getting more well, I would say clinical, but it's not clinical psychology because we don't do clinical interventions. And I am not a licensed clinical psychologist, but I do get to hear the stories and see some of the screening questionnaire data on like sometimes really elevated scores. And what I'm really fascinated with related to what you said is how early trauma can affect the patterns. So these patterns, you know, I typically then see the child when, or not see them literally because we only work on the phone and online, but I hear what's going on with the child around age three, four, five years old. And my job, again, it's not to, you know, heal the child or do an intervention and do therapy with them. We try to find therapists to connect them to, but a lot of times parents cannot find a therapist that works with them or not with a young age group or, or they haven't identified what was going on. And one thing that I'm really interested in is medical, potential medical trauma or birth trauma that a lot of medical professionals are not recognizing. And again, it is kind of limited with the research that we have. But there is a psychiatrist in Colorado called Theodore Gainsbauer or Ted Gainsbauer, I don't know if you have heard of him, but he did work mostly with children with documented trauma, meaning child abuse that 
had records. So there was written documentation of what actually happened to these children. Because a problem in research with these things is typically we can try to lead it back to earlier development and experiences, but we, the baby can't really say, you know, yes, this happened to me and I was there. You know, they don't have this capacity for, for the explicit memories to, to give words to them. To backtrack a little bit, so it helped me grow when we do get questions about a child who flies off the handle from the smallest trigger, just a small trigger like peeling a banana wrong, and they completely, you know, start to throw things or hurt themselves or get very aggressive with the parents or their tantrum lasts an hour or more. When it's that extreme, I found that a lot of the times there does seem to be something in the child's history that was, you know, pre-verbal and not acknowledged so far. So we usually begin with the more like common sense kind of things, you know, like, um, are you rewarding the behavior? And we're not behaviorists, but, you know, we do look at what are you doing after the behavior? What have you tried? Let's look at sensory sensitivities of the child and maybe to help with that. So we do look at all kinds of things in the here and now before, before I ask this question of maybe what happened earlier. So what I wanted to share as well is that there is not a lot, ton of research on this. However, there is a psychiatrist in Denver called Theodore Gainsbauer. He's, um, I'm not sure if he's still in practice, but he's probably at the end of his career if he is, because for many, many years he has studied the process of how children with trauma in their early life are developing over time. And he has found that children tend to identify both with the victim, the child who was so tiny and overwhelmed by the experiences, whether or not that was abuse, it could have also been a medical procedure or an accident. But it, what happened was the child felt overwhelmed. And so they still feel very helpless. And they tend to keep identifying with that. And so you, can, you tend to see a helpless pattern in these children. But at the same time, they also tend to identify with the aggressor. And when I say aggressor, this could be a medical provider, even though they're not aggressors, you know, but it can feel like that to the child. And the child, when they're little, their aggressive behaviors could just mostly be think, uh, things like just, you know, biting the normal toddler stuff, but amplified. <laughs> it tends to be stronger or not as modifiable, breaking things, hurting people. But it's hard sometimes to, to know if this is normal development or, or due to any early experience. But as children grow, then the way that they express these things tends to be transformed. And so aggression can now be expressed by words. And that's when children maybe start to figure out oh, if I say this particular word or particular phrase or at this moment, you know, and they're not really coming up with that consciously, that they just do this in the moment because they are not feeling safe and they are reenacting that situation that made them frightened, but now in, from the perspective of the aggressor. And so sometimes these behaviors can seem baffling to parents and when I ask back and, and they are talking about the experience during the birth process or in NICU or even a time when this mom was, I can't remember what the procedure was, but 
she had been very a, a very conscious parent and asked the doctors to be there with her child when he was going under the anesthesia and then when he would wake up but he she wasn't there when he woke up and imagine a young child i don't know he was still in his first year of life i believe maybe six eight months or something and he woke up and his mom wasn't there and again all children are different so for some kids this may not be a problem but this particular child around 10 months and then she contacted us when he was three he had this huge what she called ballistic tantrums and she had tried everything <laughs> you know she was a great mom actually she's an awesome mom very perceptive and also consistent in trying things out not just trying it out for one day and then let, letting it go but still his tantrums were lasting over an hour it took him sometimes you know also 30 minutes to an hour to calm down from them she would be scared that he would break stuff in the house and he would do it everywhere too. He had these tantrums in public or wherever. And she didn't know what to do anymore. And so when I brought that up and she started to ponder like, yeah, perhaps that wasn't an issue. She sought out trauma informed therapy. And right away when she started doing that, this actually, she said he changed <laughs> like 180 degrees. Like he changed so much that she she said yeah that must have been a fact the, the the factor that kept him in this loop because nothing else would work and so definitely i really want to raise awareness about traumatic experiences in in infancy and early childhood because yeah they are really hard to pinpoint and people forget about it i think parents oftentimes have a sense about it but professionals don't recognize it because it is has been hard to study and the research is still pretty meager. So I'm hoping that we'll get more research on it, but definitely those have been my experiences in practice. While mm, I don't that's that, so insightful. That's so amazing. Yeah. It, it, I, think, I think, honestly, most trauma can be traced back to these attachment traumas. It's like it's a mother wound at its core. Yeah. Um, it's really, it's really amazing. And of course, this, this is for those of us that kind of think in the big picture and work on policy and systems level work, this is the real crux of the challenge, regardless of what systems are doing well or not well. The, the real nuts and bolts reality is that traumatized people are being asked to not create trauma. Mm -hmm. You know, because there's no way, maybe there's a small way, but there's a very unlikely way that an infant experiencing trauma is not the child of a person experiencing trauma. They're related. And it's this acknowledgement piece that you mentioned a little while ago that I think is so, so transformative and important. Unacknowledged trauma grows. Mm -hmm. Acknowledged trauma shrinks. And yeah. And yet, our nation is not acknowledging trauma on either side, sometimes for the mother, but almost never for the baby. Mm -hmm. It's alive. What are you complaining about? And yet, I love what you're doing. And of course, my focus as well is like, there's so much more to the story. Mm -hmm. There's so much more than just surviving. So thank you for that illustrative story. Will you, will you walk us kind of from a, a top-down like definitions for our listeners? Will you walk us through what mental health in a healthy place looks like for an infant and what it doesn't? 
Yes. So we go by the definition that was developed by the organization called Zero to Three. And Zero to Three is another organization actually pretty parallel to the Infant Mental Health Associations, comes out of similar research and even similar people founded, founded it. And the definition that they come up with is the capacity of the infant to form healthy relationships, to learn to regulate their emotions so that they are free to explore the world and interested in exploring the world. And all of that embedded within the context of their families and culture, including their ethnicity, racial differences, you know, uh, mostly the ethnic, ethnic and cultural differences that are, exist in the baby's environment. So the practice and field of infant mental health is basically deeply relational. And so the context of the bigger community is part of that. But basically what we do is we, in infant mental health, we have three main functions. One is promotion, basically raising awareness of what it means to have a healthy development as an infant for their mental health. The second one is prevention or also called proactive intervention, meaning that recognizing challenges early and then helping kind of to put the development back on the more healthy track. So when we recognize a child that has high anxiety or high aggression, at that young age of two, three, four, five years old, they don't usually have a diagnosis yet or may not qualify for a diagnosis or it's not diagnosable. And there's a whole different other discussion about how we much we want to do that or not. But, but this part of uh, where we try to intervene early to where it's not yet a disorder or it might never become one because now we help the child get back on the right track. And the third one is specialized intervention. So these are therapies that are specifically developed for infants, uh, toddlers, and young children. And they are typically relational, parent-child. For example, parent-child interaction therapy is one. So there's multiple ones based in attachment theory. And then, uh, of course, there's play therapy. Th those three elements are there. Yeah, prevention. Wow. Yeah. And all of that has varying degrees of success, mostly dependent upon the caregivers, right? Yeah. So that's the other aspect that I wanted to mention is the relational aspect. So in order to help the baby, we help the caregiver. So basically the caregiver relates to their infant, the mom or dad, or if it's biological or not, doesn't matter. So the, care, the one who takes care of the baby because the baby's mental health is not separate from the relationship. So in order to promote the mental health of the infant, we want to you know, support and promote this relationship. And in order to do that, we have to relate to the caregiver. And then the professional actually also has to be supported as well through a supportive relationship. And there's a process called reflective supervision in the practice of infant mental health, which basically is a sort of mindful listening and processing, wondering, <laughs> you know, watching, wondering. It's not so much to get a solution like, how do I solve this problem? How do I, what actions do I take? No, it's more like, oh, what, is, what does this bring up for you? And I wonder why it's hard for you to deal with high levels of aggression. And it's not therapy, but it is to 
help the, the professional to be more available for the parent so that the parent can then be more available to the infant. And then, of course, in some cases, like I said, there are these therapies that specifically directly work with the parent-infant relationship. And so they, yeah, they will directly work with that dynamic. But yeah, the field as a whole really acknowledges all these levels of relationship and that's how we heal. Yeah, it's so amazing. And, and of course, we all know this to be true. Nobody has escaped growing up in America without hearing the phrase, ain't mama happy, ain't nobody happy. Yep. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> because it is so, so relational. And oftentimes, well, not absolutely, it's an imperative that when you're born, you are not yet aware that you are separate from your mother. So these emotions, these traumas, these feelings, these environments, situations, experiences are all felt by the infant. And so that's why support of the mother is so vitally important. In our last episode, we interviewed a therapist in Colorado who focuses on helping mothers resolve trauma, childhood trauma. And today I'm so excited to kind of do the reverse and talk about when childhood trauma is formed and kind of look at how that person becomes a mother instead of the mother who was the child, which is a fun little reverse for us. But there are so many traumas. And I, I want to spend just a moment kind of naming some of the problems. And obviously we're going to get to the solutions, but we need to contextualize them. Mm -hmm. So Many of our listeners have experienced some of these things themselves. Some of our listeners are providers who are looking to screen and, and assess moms and families and babies and all of that. What are, what are some of the problems systemically that are creating the problems that you see relationally in, in the, the clients that you work with mm -hmm. or the organization? Yeah. So, so yeah, there are many and it begins, well, probably begins pre-birth but if we look at around the time of birth there is of course in the united states specifically most western or you know modern societies that are technological have hospital births and very much specializing in one area or the other so the doctors and nurses helping the mother are typically not the same as the ones helping the baby and a lot of the times there's not enough attention to the mothers which is part of the one is one explanation I have to say for the higher levels of maternal mortality in the United States than in other countries that have same wonderful technologies. And then, and then this is of course, especially true for African-American women who die at much higher rates than other ethnicities. And so it's, it's also a racial disparity problem, but, Part of that, I think, is related to this division between the different specialties. And again, we, as from infant mental health perspective, we are very strong on relationships. And so you're a midwife, you know, and I love the midwifery model because that is much more, it's just based on building a relationship with that mother from pre-birth pre a while before that. And then, well, while she gives birth and after. So because relationships especially with a trusted experienced pre, you know someone who's present with you creates safety and we talk about trauma but the opposite of that is you no know, safety and security and so when you're giving birth and you're getting already stressed because you're isolated or you don't know who your trust person is that's one issue 
Um, and I, like I said, I, I'm Dutch, I'm from the Netherlands. And when I was born in that time, it was very, it was normal to be born at home <laughs> with a family physician typically, but then now there's still a large culture of, of midwife models, but home births are going down a lot over there. But yeah, the whole, my whole point basically is that relationship part. With the specialization, I think a lot of the times there's not enough attention to the mother or, or, or the mother-infant relationship. And a lot of hospitals are trying to do the, what is it, health, well baby, healthy baby um, model. But still, you know, even if they support breastfeeding and such, is this lactation consult in this day and then the next morning it's a different one. And, and so all the differences are not building that sense of safety very much. And then in the United States, the next thing is you go home. There's nobody there. <laughs> and again, I'm Dutch. And in the Netherlands, you know, it's not per nowhere is perfect. But they in the Netherlands have the system where a nurse comes to your home, they weigh the baby, they do the heel prick, they do they test the mother and they give the mother rest. You know, they are saying, okay, you got to rest. I'll take care of this other, you know, the other kids and but here in the United States, you're, you're home, you're on your own and figure it out. <laughs> and not only that, but like, see you in six weeks. <laughs> like yes. No care for the mother. Yes. Um, at all. And, and the infant care, like you said, is completely separate. We've touched on this in a number of episodes because what we call continuity of care in that yes. the person that you start seeing is who you, sees you all the way through literally saves lives. And it's one of the reasons why midwifery care is actually safer than American obstetrical care, because that one-on-one -on -one thorough continuity of care that I would, I want to add like one other piece that really increases safety. And that is culturally matched care in that you're being cared for by someone that looks like you, that sounds like you, that is from your same culture, changes everything. You've seen that too? No, but that, that's, that's a very, I'm thinking of a story and it's again, I don't know how relevant it is, so, but I'll share it because I just heard it today from one of our infant mental health board members. And apparently it was in the news, but I had missed the news story. It was this uh, Hispanic Utah woman, so Utah mom from Latina origin, I don't know much else about her. Uh, but she had gone to the hospital and said she wasn't, she was concerned about her infant. She thought she maybe needed to give birth early or something, but she was sent home. And then when she finally came back and had the baby, her baby died. And we were wondering, but we don't know, you know, had this anything to do with her ethnicity or not? We don't know that. Nobody can know that. I think it has to do with the system again, you know, if they would have known this mother, they probably would have helped. Well, you can't, I mean, that's the thing about relationship. When you know someone, you can't ignore them. Yes. Yes. And that's why continuity of health, of care changes everything. Yeah. Not only like from a, a legal ethical standpoint, this is my patient and I'm responsible for the outcome of her care. I mean, that's a whole fuzzy place anyway, because we're personally responsible for our own health and da, da, da. But in American model, providers are tasked with the outcome of their care not only does that happen, but actually I know her name and I know her partner and I've heard the story of her birth and I know where she lives and I care about her. I know her. Mm -hmm. So if she were to call and say, I'm worried about my baby, 
I can't not like there's you, <laughs> you mm-hmm. can't ignore that. But when uh, it's an anonymous stranger who is potentially overworked, there's no incentive. There's no yeah. reason to even pay attention. And this is potentially the most dangerous part of American maternity care. And it's not just dangerous for the mothers, like we've said. It's also dangerous for the babies. Sure, they may live, but what are the fallout from these massive interventions, being separated from your mother, having unnecessary interventions, and then ultimately, like the case you just shared, having their mother have no voice so they can't even advocate for them. It's, it's really shocking, isn't it? I mean, I think, I think a lot of us, you know, sort of contextually in the United States are coming to terms with the fact that much of what we perceive to be true about the United States is not true. Mm-hmm. We're seeing that on a global scale right now with our disjointed COVID response, with our, you know, becoming more aware of the really gross systemic injustices and inequities, with the number of cases that are just not talked about, not publicized, not getting any attention, both, you know, Black men who are brutalized by the police and Black women who are ignored by the medical system. It's a sort of a similar thing that's happening. And I think most of the country is now waking up and aware of the problems that have been sort of silent. Obviously, the people experiencing them have been not been silent, and there's many researchers who have not been silent. But the mainstream media, the mainstream attention has basically ignored these systems. As we become more culturally, globally aware, conscious of the challenges, we see more subtle things, more subtle challenges. And so this piece of, of the health of the infant being in direct relation to the health of the mother, I think is something we're finally becoming aware of. And then the other really fascinating change that's happening on a big level is this sudden and you and I obviously have a duh awareness, but it, it's funny to watch it happen on a global scale. Suddenly, mainstream folks are like, oh, hospitals are for sick people. Oh, I never, I never quite got that. Oh, if you're healthy, why would you have a baby in the hospital? Oh, <laughs> That's, it's kind of interesting to watch because, you know, those of us who've worked outside the system for years have been like, uh-huh. <laughs> but but yeah. now we're, we're seeing this massive spike in community-based birth, birth centers and home birth clinics and, and midwives are being utilized at a rate that hasn't been seen in the United States in 150 years. So it's, it's kind of exciting to see. I, and I really, I want to just come back to that relational piece So you named one major problem, which is this division separation of what really is a a one unit relationship. So in the same way that when the baby is born, it's actually still connected to the mother by the cord. Mm -hmm. We like to encourage families to think that that while the, the physical cord might be cut, the emotional spiritual cord doesn't get severed for a long time or maybe ever. Like we are always connected to our children. And so in the same way that you can't physically take a baby away from its mom without, without a violent act cutting, if we, could just, if we could just expose that from the relational piece, like you can't actually separate a baby from its mother without a violent act, without causing, viol- without causing disruption, you know, interference 
pain emotionally. So if we could redesign a system that would allow for this crucial connection, what are some of the solutions? What would we do? What are some of the first steps? Well, that's a big question because it is so related to all the systems, you know, and I do believe that if we could integrate, you know, more of a, a midwifery model into our birthing system, I think, I believe that would be very helpful. And I do want to note that since I'm Dutch, I see the differences, you know, when I talk about to my classes, for instance, about home births or midwife assisted births, first of all, many of my students have not heard of midwives or don't really know what they are. And second of all, and it's not the same as home birth, you know, I explained that too, that it, midwife can help in multiple contexts. However, with regards to home birth, I always have to explain that in the Netherlands, we have clear, clear guidelines that, you know, you have to be close to a hospital, you have no high risk pregnancy. So it's not just like, oh, you know, a free for all <laughs> and just, uh, you know. And Utah laws are the same. Yeah, it's also true. Yeah, a lot of people are not aware of that, you know, and so mm -hmm. so I think you know, but I want to just clarify that with those safety guards in place, that this support of the mom before and you know, and if if we couldn't in reality in a perfect world get get a, a midwife model, then at least a doula or someone who can be a continuous person from before to after birth, supporting the entire family, also the dads, because, you know, they're often forgotten and he doesn't know what, you know, if it's his first baby, <laughs> what to do or how to act or how to support her or he, it's new for him too. So he needs support as well. And other children that are already there, you know, the whole family needs, needs support. And so yeah, creating some sort of system where there is specialty in the process of giving birth, but also the emotional support. And then also after birth, making sure that there is a system where, of course, we have parental leave, uh, maternity leave, where it's not expected that you go back. So I'll tell a little, little in-between story. The first time I came to the United States was in 1999, and we had a conference in Albuquerque. And there were a couple of us Europeans and we went out to a restaurant and the server that we had was this hugely pregnant woman. She looked like she was almost close to giving birth. And we were thinking, how is this possible? Don't you have, you know, leave? aren't you supposed to be having leave now and rest, you know, <laughs> put your feet up and take care of yourself? We were really shocked to see someone having to work at, at that stage. And then I've had students who told me their friends were waiter, waitress or um, servers and had to go back to work when they were still, they just had given birth and they could hardly stand or walk. Well, that's cruel. That's just cruel. So, so definitely a system where there is acknowledgement of that there's a fourth trimester not just for the baby because we call it the fourth trimester you know the baby's out of the womb they're still developing we know our babies are born early you know relatively early because of their big brains and so they have so much more to develop in terms of their regulation and all of this yeah they're born very immature i yeah. i love that we talk about kangaroo care and i'm i'm now in australia <laughs> i get to hang out with the kangaroos and the marsupials are born into the pouch. So they're, they're out of the womb. 
but they cannot function alone. And I love that image to think of that as the baby in the same way. Like, yes, they need the same kind of care and nurturance that the marsupial pouch provides. This kangaroo yes. pouch saying, you know, you, you're still, you're still in, in the container, if you will. Yeah. If we could create this idea around integrated care where mother and baby weren't separated and then continue that so that mom and baby weren't separated because of financial reasons before and after too, that would be very important. What else, what else would change in the system could radically change and quickly change the challenges that we see in, in infant mental health? Yes. And actually I was thinking uh, perhaps I can switch to actual things that we're doing already in Utah because there's a couple of good things going on <laughs> that uh, are happening in the real world. So yes, in terms of what we could improve, there are some big systemic change things like in the medical system and then in terms of you know parental leave, uh, that would be ideal. But a question is to what can we do with the situation that we are currently in and then start improving things like you just asked. So in Utah, Utah is a relatively small state population-wise. We have 3.2 million people. And again, I'm from the Netherlands. It has about 17 million people. <laughs> and the surface of the Netherlands is about one-fifth of Utah. So Utah is large in terms of geography, but small in terms of population, which also means that the people in the systems working with infants, families, and moms are it's a pretty limited group of us. It's a, it's a group of us that we are small enough that we can all know each other and connect. And I think that on multiple levels in Utah, we have recognized gaps and there's been multiple spearheading people who have started initiatives that are all helping. And so I already mentioned one of them, which was Janet Wade and Susan Ord, who were then at the Baby Watch early intervention program with the State Department of Health. Another one that I want to highlight is Amy Rose White. And Amy Rose White is a licensed clinical social worker who was, actually she's originally from Australia, but she was trained as a perinatal psychotherapist and initially worked with young children in early intervention and, and wanted to help with these early beginning mental health problems in infants. And she realized in order to help the babies, I have to help the moms. So she then actually started the Maternal Mental Health Collaborative in Utah, I think around 2014 or so. And meanwhile, this has now been renamed uh, and re it's a different organization now. It's part of the Postpartum Support International organization. So now they're called PSI Utah, but it's still Amy Rose who's spearheading most of it, but she has connected with many people in the health department, with obstetricians, with people working with infants and families, and with mental health professionals across Utah. So she's done a lot of networking, and she has also done trainings. She trained mental health professionals in how is mental health different around the time of birth, during pregnancy, and postpartum. So for example, depression tends to have a lot more anxiety or can have more anger than depression without the postpartum aspect. 
she specialized in that and she's training, she has been training over the past couple of years, she's been training mental health professionals so that they are more educated and can work more specifically with issues around the time of birth. So that's one big improvement, even though we only still have a small section of our mental health providers who are trained in that, awareness has been increasing in Utah due to that. She has also trained the professionals like early intervention specialists, home visitors, early child care and Head Start people in these things as well so that we can start recognizing what are the symptoms and signs. And another big part of their campaign has been to promote more screening with the Edinburgh Postpartum Depression Screener. Because we know that medical professionals, you know, it would be good if they did it, but I looked up some statistics that Amy Rose shared and she said that only 6% of the obstetricians actually offered this screener. And then the next question is, what do they do with it? So the other organization that I want to highlight is Help Me Grow. So I work for Help Me Grow Utah and know it from the inside. And it's kind of similar. We are mostly focused. Our mission is to support early health, mental health, and developmental health, developmental milestones and such in young children so that we can refer to appropriate services like early intervention or mental health providers or any, anything that's related. We also realized if we help the infants optimally, we have to help the, mom, the moms and families. So we actually at Help Me Grow have decided to, to use the Edinburgh screener. And we offer it now to all the moms prenatally if we, have, if we work with them during pregnancy and also postpartum. So about six weeks after the due date, for sure we wanna offer the Edinburgh. And also if they have a higher score, we will continue doing them until until the mom says, oh, I don't want to do it anymore, or until her score goes down and we know that she's been helped. And Help Me Grow is also very much based in a relationship-based model. One thing that I really love about our team is that we always will listen with attention. And um, I looked up some of the comments that moms would give, and this one said, I really appreciate how you offered me genuine care. I could feel that you genuinely cared. And that's a comment that we frequently get. For example, we make a big point of always referring the moms back to their physicians, their family doctor or their obstetrician um, or with the, with the children, you know, did you see your pediatrician? But with the mom's emotional struggles around this period, they often think like, oh, it's, it's my doctor. He doesn't care about my state of being or yeah, I thought that they probably wouldn't have time for me. And then we call them and we say, how are you doing? We see that your score is kind of high. We normalize it, you know, many moms go through this, you know, it's, it's very common. We normalize it, but we also really listen to her and see what's going on for her. So if moms have elevated scores, we do ask questions about her history, like has she struggled with mental health before or is this new? We ask about her context. So do you have any family or friends who could support you? Because sometimes they have the social support systems, but they haven't tapped into them, you know, and they think they have to go all alone. So we really encourage them to tap into their existing resources we really emphasize that your body needs to heal. You just went through a huge, you know, huge 
task, a huge feat in your life. That this is amazing that you gave birth, and so your body needs to replenish. You need you need nutrition. You need water. You need sleep. You need sunshine. So we we will of course, if there are elevated scores, refer the mom to a mental health professional, or at least to their physician. But we always will also do these the things that they can do at home. And a lot of times they know it, they know, yeah, oh yeah, I should get more sleep or yeah, I know I'm not eating too well. But just somebody asking and caring. And then we also have an excellent follow-up system where we make notes and like, okay, call again in a week or something like that. You know, and we call back and how is it going with taking little walks with your baby or asking a friend to watch your baby so you can sleep. And so because we do that, another mother said, it's like you gave me homework. So because you asked me to, I did it. <laughs> and I think this was big uh, to relate to a therapist that she needed. Because we asked, we care. And it's the same person that we keep with the same mom. So it's a, a relationship, you know, it's on the phone, but it's somebody who cares about me and who asks about me and recognizes that, me, that I'm important too. It is so important. You know, I'm a huge fan of Brene Brown's work, you know, the, the seminal researcher in, in, on vulnerability and everything. And, and she, her, her amazing book, Braving the Wilderness, really pulls apart the, the need for belonging. Like we have such a tremendous need to belong that actually we will even belong to the wrong, unhelpful situation just to feel like we belong. And your solution of, of connecting, which is really creating a belonging container saying, you belong to us. We're going to check in on you because we care so much that we want you in our crew, you know, like that's very simplified, obviously doing a lot more, but, but it's, it is very, it's very basic. I mean, this basic need to be like, I'm not alone. I love what you're doing. And I think it could be so easily replicated around the world, around the country for sure. There are some pilot projects of some home visiting nurse scenarios. Certainly, if someone is seeing a midwife, they're getting this already because part of the built-in care of, of at least community-based birth, not necessarily hospital-based birth, but community-based birth with a midwife involves home visits. Uh, most midwives I know around the United States, especially there in Utah, see moms in their homes at day two and day seven. And then they come into the office at 14 week, 14 days, uh, two weeks. And then they usually see them again at four weeks and six weeks. And there's this whole thorough check-in process. Yeah. So that would be incredible. If we have moms listening that don't have those kinds of resources in their community and, or don't have the, the resources to find or pay for a therapist with all of the systemic injustices that exist, what can, what can we say to say this will improve your mental health so that you can take care of your baby better, or this is something you can do to help your infant's mental health? What would you say if they can't rely on any outside resources? So when they can't rely on any of those resources, it is much more, first of all, I want to acknowledge that, for, that it is a lot harder for you because as human beings we're not designed to do this alone <laughs> we're not designed to give birth alone and to raise a baby alone but in our society many of us have to and so basically your baby needs you but you need to also take care of you because if you don't take care of you then you cannot take care of your baby 
And sometimes, you know, that may mean that your baby may have to cry for, you know, a little bit while you recharge, while you need to take a small break from your infants, because really taking care of yourself is so, so important. It's like, you know, putting on your own oxygen mask before putting on your child's in an airplane, because you are the resource for this infant. And when I say taking care of yourself, so there are a few things that we know greatly impact the mom's mental health. And one of them is sleep, for sure. And that's very challenging when you have a newborn, but make that a priority. Another one is social support. And so if you have anyone that could support you, that would be the best if you could ask them whatever works in your situation, you know, just talking to them or maybe coming visit or maybe help take care of the baby for a little bit. That is another huge one that research is supporting. I have kind of a controversial thought to put in. And that's this idea that if we know moms need more sleep and honestly, the best way to get more sleep as a new mom is to sleep with your baby. And this is very controversial in mainstream in the mainstream world, but truly the only organization you can find against sleep sharing is the Consumer Product Safety Commission, which is the lobbyist for crib manufacturers. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's actually many, many pediatricians, including the whole Sears franchise and James McKenna, and they're very outspoken pediatricians who say that actually, if you're not taking drugs or drinking, sleeping on a couch or a waterbed, if you just have a normal flat bed, that the safest place for your infant is with you. So getting up in the night because your baby is sleeping in a different room or a different bed is a great way to interrupt your sleep and not get great sleep. And so sleeping with your baby is a huge way to decrease the amount of demands on you and to increase your sleep time. I don't know how you feel about that, but I know that to be true in my research. Yeah, so I know of James McKenna's research, you know, and how babies regulate with their moms and their breathing is getting in sync and the moms open their eyes slightly when they're still sleeping and watch their infant. I'm personally in favor of co-sleeping. And I do want to qualify this as more of a personal experience because I was that mom who co-slept and breastfed and I still didn't get enough sleep. <laughs> in my case, yeah. you know, I had this image of like, oh, and then we, I'll just be drifting back into sleep. But no, he totally woke me up and I was completely <laughs> sleep deprived. And so, yeah, it's not a hundred percent solution, but it can no. reduce the hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And related to maternal mental health, I do want to say that some of us, so I personally had pretty high anxiety and I've met since then, my son is 14 years old now. So since then, I've met other moms who want to do things so well, you know, carry their baby in a, in a carrier, um, do the co-sleeping, breastfeeding on demand, which I do believe is really good for babies. But again, if you don't take care of your own self, then it's defeating the purpose. And so for my personal self, I went on so much to be like, no, but I have to always, you know, help him and breastfeed him. And but I got to be so exhausted and I'm seeing this in other moms. So there are possibly other solutions, like maybe Absolutely. Um, you know, sleep in a little yeah. bit next to you, not immediately with you or, or again, have someone else come and take care of your baby and do take that nap in the daytime. Yeah. But don't it does add more. up. Yeah. Contrary to what they think, you know, 
sleeping several two hours stretch does actually help. You don't have to sleep eight hours straight. You can add it up. Naps work. Yeah. No, I love that reminder that, that again, going back to the core of this, it is relational. Yes. And teaching your child that they are the center of the universe and you will sacrifice all of your needs for them is actually not a great relationship tool. It's like the recipe for how to create a narcissist. So actually it's quite important that you acknowledge your own needs and meet them too. And families have come up with all kinds of unique solutions to meet everyone's needs. So sometimes that is co-sleeping and bed sharing. Sometimes that's the musical bed thing at night. You put them to sleep in this bed and then go back to another bed and then chase each other around the house at night. Sometimes that is having separate sleep spaces. And, you know, same thing with breastfeeding. We know that breastfeeding is optimal infant nutrition and obviously protects moms against all kinds of cancers. And there's lots of reasons why it's, it's a wonderful choice, unless it's not for you. Mm-hmm. Unless it's actually super triggering because there's sexual trauma or unless, you know, it, you, there's all kinds of reasons yeah. why we need to continue to find the solution that's right for us. I, I love that reminder of this relationship that you're building. And I always like to say like your relation, the baby's relationship with the mom is like life 101. It's like relationship 101 and how it's done is generally the relationship they think is normal for the rest of their life. And if it's done in this very ignoring, I, you don't matter, my needs are only important way, that's, that's really sets up a pattern of being okay with people essentially ignoring and abusing you. Conversely, the same is true if you set up the relationship where you will do anything, even at your own risk, to support the other person. That is also dangerous because it sets the child up to believe that the world revolves around them, and that's obviously not safe either. So it's this two-way street. And I always say it's never static. So the way that you start parenting a tiny infant is very different than the way that you parent a two-year-old, which is very different than the way you parent a 12-year-old, which is very different than the way you parent your 22-year-old. And, and this, this continuum of them needing everything from you in the beginning and then moving gradually to this place where actually you're very, very entirely self-reliant and self and separate is the goal. Like it's hard to admit, but our uh, parenting, the goal is to actually work yourself out of a job. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And I would like to add a research study that is relevant to this. Also, again, to qualify, because again, personally, I have my own beliefs. You know, I do believe in constant contact and uh, as much touch as possible, breastfeeding as possible. However, again, yeah, like exactly like you said, both are important in the equation, the parent and the child and the whole family's needs. So a recent recent research study, I believe it was done just last year, looked at what is minimally needed to create a secure attachment in an infant at 12 months of age, which is typically when we measure how securely attached an infant is. And to very briefly define a secure attachment, basically it's a stable, relationship with one trusted person. So you can have multiple attachments relationships with multiple caregivers, but it's always unique to this particular person that you are with. And the goal of it is to keep the baby safe. So in our ancient history, when we had predators, you know, the baby had to stay close to the parent in order to be safe from danger. And that's still true today. So in order to keep the baby close, the baby has behaviors like crying, clinging, moving towards the parent to obtain, say, closeness. 
But the other side of the spectrum of this kind of, it's like a seesaw, so is exploration. When an infant who can crawl around already, when they feel safe, then they will naturally go out and explore and learn and, and, and enjoy <laughs> the world. And then when they encounter something that scares them or they get a little hungry or there's something you know, where they have this emotional need, then they'll come back to you and refuel on their emotional needs. And so, and then when they refuel, they go back out. So it's one program is called the circle of security, which is an awesome model because it's like a circle, which becomes larger and larger as we grow older. So now they did a study to see what was needed to promote secure attachment with a group of low income, high risk mothers. You know, they had multiple stressors in their life and they could not continually be there for that infant 24 seven, even if it were <laughs> optimal. And so the, there were multiple observations done at a couple of months intervals. I believe they started around three months of age of the baby. And they found that if the mothers completely soothed the babies 50% of the time, this was enough to support secure attachment. And when I say completely soothed, this meant ventral to ventral, so belly to belly, like on your, your chest, holding that baby until they go like, <sighs> completely relaxing themselves and molding into the mother's body. But only half of the time, and then the other two elements, were if the baby's playing happily just leave them alone <laughs> leave them be when they're happy on their own you don't have to constantly be there with them and the third thing was to delight delight in when they would approach you with something like show you a toy or show you something and you would go like oh look that's awesome that's amazing you did that you know something really positive in those moments when the baby reaches out to you positively so those three elements were strongly predicting how secure the attachment was at 12 months that's so encouraging actually that's so exciting thank you for sharing that it can it can take some of the weight off right we have such this perfectionism in our culture and so many ideals it's fantastic to know that if you can light up in your kids sharing joy with your kid if you can leave them happily playing and if you can you know really be there half the time that you're doing well <laughs> yes exciting exactly you're and succeeding yeah. yes and that's something that in general i always recommend a lot too because you know the opposite of trauma is safety but also play if you can be yeah. playful humorous it's not always easy but if you can shift into that mode of like maybe exaggerating something that goes wrong like oh my gosh this is going all wrong <laughs> and then you can laugh about it then a child they, they latch onto that and they love it. Yeah. yeah. And it's developing that resiliency. Yes. That we all need throughout our life. Well, so thank you so much. This has been a tremendous conversation. Your wisdom, your insights, the way that you're pioneering this kind of work in your region of the world is, is exceptional. Thank you for sharing it with us today. Thank you. Yeah. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you.